Hello fellow beings, welcome to Tapasya Loading, a safe space to attempt honest, raw and authentic conversation in homage to the ancient act of stoking a sacred fire. This episode's brought to you by everynowheremusic.com. Yep, you got that right, that's yours truly. So if this is an endeavor you'd like to support, please come and sign up for my newsletter at everynowheremusic.com. Every nowhere or every now here, depending on whichever way you prefer to look at it. If you've ever seen Dr. Das on stage, the fiery energy and the quiet and polite disposition with which he's heard in this conversation might come as a slight surprise to you. As an experimental musician with South Asian roots, Dr. Das has always been someone I've looked up to for being one of the earliest pioneers of the same. What one often tends to overlook though is the depth of thought behind his philosophies as a bass player and the manner in which he still remains one of the masters of cracking what I call the bass code, incorporating it in music that still pays tribute to our common ancestors. A feat especially tricky since we're talking about a musical culture that traditionally never had bass. Founding member of the iconic group Asian Dub Foundation and currently most active as Dongshu. To have had this brother as my first guest in the podcast is a omen of the highest honor. Now with no further ado, Dr. Das on the very first episode of the Pasio Loading. All right, we are on tape, so to speak, well, metaphorically anyway. Digitally. Digitally. Thanks so much for doing this, man. It's all right. I got into music because I, I hated talking. So it's, it's so ironic to, after 20 years of being a musician, that I decided to do a podcast. I'm, I'm not sure I'm the best talker. And uh, you're my first guest. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> You're literally the first person I'm interviewing, and I want to let you know that it's uh, I consider it uh, an enormous honor. Oh, thank you, thank you so much. How are you doing? I'm doing fine, thank you. I'm just doing probably what I was doing before lockdown, and will continue to do after lockdown, which is to make sounds in my little space here. When you say lockdown, exactly how much of a lockdown is it currently in the UK? Well, it just depends on what state of entitlement you are. Yeah, yeah. makes sense. Um, there's a lockdown, but it's been, there's so much um, confusion and mixed messages. And uh, people are just interpreting as they wish, really. So... Right. You know, I I have my mum here to to worry about, but regardless of that, um, there's the the whole point of lockdown is to protect everybody, not just yourself. And um, there's just a heck of a lot of selfish people out there who just, um, you know, the the lockdown in the UK has been partially lifted. But then people are now just disregarding social distancing as well. I actually made it back to Germany from London right before lockdown yeah. on one of, one of the last flights. In fact, uh, we were almost not allowed to land. They sent us to Dusseldorf first, wow. uh, where we waited for towers. And uh, I left my 70-something uncle in Leytonstone and I've... I've felt a little guilty, but in hindsight, I'm also glad that I wasn't close because 
chances are I'm, I probably was carrying or would be carrying at some point with my mm-hmm. lifestyle. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's it's a it's a tumult of emotions and a lot of processing to do. I'm uh, glad I made it back here because uh, that way, uh, as counterintuitive as it sounds, I'm away from my parents who are also in the 70s. I'm away from most of my loved ones who are in the mm-hmm. so-called risk group. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, isolation. I mean, my life in Germany is pretty isolated anyway. Same here. Uh, yeah? Yeah. Well, tell us more about that, please. Well, I just um, I just tend to get on with making sounds on my little space in front of my speakers and um, I do have the people closer friends that I liaise with and with whom I also make music people like Ramjack or Bantu and beyond that you know if there's gigs coming up uh, that I have to perform at um I'll go to those, but generally I'm just taking this time in general to get on, forge ahead with the music and also any kind of studying and reading. And in some respects, it's a similar period to, I don't know, before ADF 25 years ago when I was in a, a process of accelerated learning, you know, reading a lot reading a lot to try and back up gut feelings, Uh, reading in order to try and become articulate. So that was happening in um, kind of educational and intellectual way, but it was also impacting upon the music and the music was also forging ahead in terms of experimentation and trying new juxtapositions of sound and when the music and the kind of political side when when they start to merge that's when something um explodes and so back then it eventually resulted in asian dub foundation and now now i feel over this period that may have started two years ago that something else is happening again tell me more what do you think is happening well in terms of the music i've got two projects on the go which are called uh, tongsha as you mentioned and also another more recent which emerged out of tongsha which is called dispossessed and dispossessed is more to do with um, noise cyclical noise and it emerged out of tongsha whereby I play passages of noise um, to introduce the Dongsha set and also to transition between um, different rhythmic parts of the set, which is what mostly the set is. Dongsha is rhythm and noise. And both of these projects are significantly different to previous works or maybe on the surface on the part of the listener in that I've I've removed one of the things that I was most well known for, which is uh, the melodic dub bassline. Mm. Right. Um, with Tongshaw, which is very much influenced by me listening to and being inspired by Detroit techno, particularly people like 
Underground Resistance or Robert Hood. I just thought, wow, um, it would be really interesting to do something very perverse uh, with this project and to to remove the kind of conscious um, programmed uh, melodic uh, baseline and um, just to use uh, the low frequency and kicks. Actually, what I used to talk against um, back in the day when I used to say the bass is anonymous, in a lot of music it's anonymous, it, it's not leading the music, it's just uh, an anonymous frequency. But um, strangely, I've come to the point where I'm just using kicks and other fragments of lower frequency sound and I guess after 25 years of being a dub musician and uh, a bass player, you can't get rid of dub mentality. So what happens is it's there's still a kind of a bass line, but it's more implied and it's it's more in the hopefully in the mind of the listener. Um, when you combine the kicks and the con the low pitched conga sound that I use a lot and um, the other fragments of um, synth sounds and noise that I use, when you combine them, there are melodies there, but they're what I call implied, as opposed to uh, tempered and, and written on a keyboard, for example, as you might do. Yeah. And um, another point to make here is the reason I got into electronics right now, or over the last couple of years, is that the previous work I was doing, which very much did feature the bass, the bass guitar, um, the dub noise stuff, it was just a struggle all the way through to, to get a significant amount of gigs that would sustain the project. And towards the end of that period, I was getting asked to, to DJ and you saw me in such a capacity in Cologne. Oh yeah, and yeah. I loved it. By the way, that was that was a very memorable night. Yeah, it was great to 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 be there to meet you. That was my highlight was to meet you. Likewise. And, um, but what I was what I was saying was that I would say to people, "Look, I'm not a DJ," and the, the only way I could do it really was I put together all the music that I had collated in terms of the albums, the dub noise albums, of which there was four, um, the, the dozens of remixes that I'd done and the dozens of collaborations I'd done with people like Indigenous Resistance. And that um, from that, I created a set of, a, of an hour, hour and a half, two hours. And that's the only way that I could feel to do it because I have no passion for DJing. It's not something I particularly understand. And from there, I thought after a while, I just thought, look, I'm just not into this, but I'll get back into experimenting again with doing live electronica. And I did that with the same kind of laptop Ableton based setup, but I still ultimately wasn't feeling that. I actually toured it in Italy with a DJ, DJ Grisano, and um, 
but ultimately wasn't feeling that and I felt I really wanted to get back to using hardware as I used to back in the day, back in the mid-80s, drum machines, samplers and stuff like that. And when this machine emerged called the Digitact made by um, Electron, that just felt so right for me. It was a small box, compact box, and mm. I put it together with a few um, um, little delay, um, my beloved rat distortion, and that became the sound of Dongsho. There's so much I'm curious about in response to what you just told us. To uh, start off with, you say noise, but it's not really noise, is it? It's very intricate stuff what you're doing in there. Well, noise is a word like music um, in that it encompasses so many things. And yet it is, it is generally, I mean, in, in general parlance, it's regarded as nuisance. In fact, you know, noise and the word nuisance are not dissimilar in sound. Mm. So it has those connotations of being something that irritates, something that disturbs. For me, noise means those things, those sounds that are often found in nature or in, in, in your urban surroundings. Or it could be uh, connotations of dissonance in, in, in the musical terms. I'm aware of its, um, its ability to disturb, to make people feel uncomfortable. And that's part of the reason I guess I make use of that sound. I don't do it deliberately for that reason. But I mean, you know, it's emotive. It's, it's, a, very, it's a component of musical history of the last 50 years in pop, especially it's it's literally a part of the sound of 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 guitar music and rock yeah. and a lot yeah, of electronica you know in distortion yes but um i've always regarded noise um as something that's um pitched and um melodic and because i also like stuff which is modal and mm. cyclical i treat noise in a very similar way to that and because of sampling sampling is what enables you to extract sounds from your surroundings and to organize those sounds so using using sampling i can i can take what i perceive as noise from various sources whether it's a demo that someone is making of a synth of the latest whatever machine and and they've got it on youtube and i listen to that and i i hear and i look out for potential motifs just a snippet of sound that most people just wouldn't notice and i will take that and it's usually a sound which is in motion it's often it's a sound a synth noise for example that is in the process of being modulated and so i'll take that and that becomes one of my cyclical motifs there's two ways I use sound in Tongshou. It's either a cyclical pattern or it will be a sound that can be a part of a, a call and response. And you've got your 16 steps in your sequence. I, I make sure that sounds aren't clashing with each other. They're actually they're, they're doing question and answer. 
those are the intricacies I was referring to. There's so much more to the music than meets the eyes. There's a lot of work gone into it. Absolutely. Reverted back to using hardware, you're you're then relinquishing a lot of the privileges you have when you're working in software. One of one of the main ones limitations of this machine is that it it does not sample or allow samples to play in mo- in stereo. It's only mono. Beautiful. Yeah, but that's where I started years ago. Before I, when I was doing work on Akai, the the MPCs, I didn't care if something was stereo. Then, fifteen years of being spoiled in in Ableton, you know, you come to appreciate the value of stereo samplings and the field of sound, all of that. But the machine does emit in stereo because it's got internal effects and also you can you can pan and you can automate the panning as well but anyway what was i saying so limitations so yes another main limitation there's no time stretching okay mm. time stretching what enables you to pour any sound at any tempo at any given pitch or key all right now there is no time stretching within the digitech so when you've got a phrase, I always make sure all my noises are in a similar or in the same pitch. So they're actually tuned to each other, okay? Wow. They're all in the same key. How do you do that, though? Songs normally start because I find a fantastic sound, kind of an alien sound, or as a, the Spanish would call it, alienígena. Mm-hmm. Okay, so... That whatever key that happens to be in, or I do audition it by tuning it up and down, whether it sounds nice in another key, whatever key that phrase is in or ends up in, that becomes the the tonic of that piece of music, if you can use a musical term there. But that right. becomes the pitch of that song. Now, I don't care whether or not it's in concert pitch, all right, because I'm not, de- I haven't designed Dongshou specifically to be playing in the context of uh, pitched musicians. Um, ah. All right. So it, it, it could well be somewhere halfway through a semitone, but it doesn't matter. But that becomes the pitch of the song. And then then I audition um, other um, sounds from from the what from the store in my within the sampler to see are they fitting uh with um this piece of with with this alien hook line you know are they fitting um pitch wise is the first port of call and then you've got to think well are they working rhythmically so what you've got there though is a phrase with a built-in rhythm the way you get it to fit in time rhythmically is you You've got to use the start and end points. So I keep messing with the start point until suddenly it's 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 kind of working. What happens is you get stuff that's really, really kind of syncopated and rhythms you might not necessarily have thought of programming had you just been doing it using um, a keyboard. Yeah, yeah, I know exactly what you mean. It sounds like a very healing musical experience that's that's what i felt when i listened to it and i know that might sound slightly counterintuitive but the first thing that hit me is this music finally acknowledges a lot of 
things we experience in our everyday lives in society, but are in constant denial of. Wow. And the reason I found it healing was it made me feel less alone in the sense, wow. okay, I'm not the only one who notices the noise around me and the constant denial about it. There are others out there who have acknowledged it. So in a way, it's, it's a tribute to coming out of that constant state of denial counterintuitive as it sounds it sounds like a very positive force to me it's 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 a very healing and positive form of music which is probably not necessarily a list of adjectives most people would use to describe it i'm going to be bold enough to say which also kind of brings me to the nomenclature of the project itself dongsho is bengali for destruction right right dongsho my usage of it as yes. my moniker there's, there's more than one reason. On a, on a musical level, it, it's relating to my usage of distortion pedal, rat mm -hmm. distortion pedal, to break mm -hmm. up the sound, to fragment the kind of fabric of the sound, to get that kind of texture. It's, it's my fragmentation of arrangement now. I mean, my arrangements are no longer me sitting in front of a computer for, for hours and days. Every recording you hear has been performed live and recorded to one stereo track. It's not multi-tracking. Beautiful. And I do edit, and I and I love editing. I love editing too. Sorry, yeah. I'm just I'm just blabbing. Sorry. Oh yeah, me. sure. I love editing, but what I do is uh, I'll say, okay, I, I I love that section. I need that section again, so I can copy and paste that or. That bit there I wasn't happy with, that little half bar, I can get rid of that. So anyway, that's another issue, arrangement and stuff. But fragmentation, destruction of the sound. I love these textures. I've always loved them. I have not considered, in the same way, the term noise. I do not consider them to be negative terms. To me, it's all part of the creativity. But you've also got the connotations it's not just an aesthetic thing there, it's also a metaphor. You're destructing convention, you're destructing destructing and deconstructing ideas that do not have the best interests of people at heart. Yes. Whether you could refer to capitalism, whether you could refer to the meat industry, all kinds of things. I'm making implications there using sound. It's also for me a, a process as well because... As I mentioned earlier, this is a moment in time where I'm similar to the moment 25 years ago where I'm studying, where I'm trying to back up um, gut feelings and um, I'm exploring and I'm trying to become articulate and I haven't got there yet. And so it's like two, not opposite forces, but different forces. One is cyclical and rhythmic and it kind of implies order. And then you've got the fragmentation of the sound, and it cannot be repeated in exactly the same way. It's like I'm destroying what I've done before, but it's it's also an extension of what, what I've done before. It's a questioning destruction. It's it's a challenge, it's dongshan meaning challenging your ideas, challenging convention, um, challenging the um the tyranny of the of the beat, I suppose, in contemporary music, which is a beat which is more to do with satisfying or uh, serving the market, the marketplace for music. And oh, I'm yeah. disrupting, I'm disrupting that. So I've got a beat, but 
it's not four on the floor. Um, sometimes you don't even know where the one is, all right? So it can be disorientating. So this dongsha has all of those connotations. And um, I mean, it's, there's some funny, there's some funny connotations as well. When I was little, I inadvertently broke a lot of my toys with. You know, <laughs> awesome. And my mum used to call me Dongsha Muti. Really? Yeah. <laughs> I used to drop as well, drop things from our balcony like milk bottles and stuff, probably wanting to know what it would sound like. How interesting. That, 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 that's actually really interesting. For, for our listeners who don't speak Bengali, Dongsha Muti <laughs> would mean... Uh, how would you translate Dongsha Muti? Um, uh, Muti, I would s suppose, refer, it can refer to character or it could, it could refer to incarnation. So you are the incarnation of destruction. Beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> Beautiful. I like that. I love the sound of that. And also, um, speaking of destruction and cycles, I couldn't help but notice how, um, how both of them have been a very intimate part of your music. And I can't help but wonder, I mean, cycles don't really exist without destruction, do they? Is that an angle you ever actually consciously address? No. Okay. Maybe it's just me. You know, a new cycle is in a way, uh, the declaration of the last one being destroyed, which doesn't necessarily mean it's disappeared. But it's mm -hmm. just, you know, starting a fresh mm -hmm. um, random observation. I couldn't help but... It's interesting, that, that because in some ways, we are both kind of referring back to... I keep seeing the image of um, Notaraj. Oh, yeah, she, absolutely. And, uh, and it's very much... What you just said is he is a destruction, but it's also cyclical. It, and then we see it in the universe. You know, the universe is full of cycles. The whole oh, yeah. universe is, is going round. What it's going round, we don't know. There's galaxies that are cycling. There's that motion. Again, for our listeners who don't speak Bengali, Nataraj would be an incarnation of Shiva, I think. Uh, yeah. who's also the incarnation of Nritya, which is uh, like the ancient Indian um, depiction of the arts in general. So Nataraj okay. was not just the incarnation of um, destruction, but also arts. Wow. He's a, he's a dancer. Yeah. Nataraj literally means a king of the dance. Right. Who also happens to be the incarnation of destruction and the divine yeah. destruction. So. Yeah. So a lot of food for thought there. This would be, though, a good time, I feel like, I hope so anyway, mm. to do a bit of a rewind because your career, for, for what I've gathered, started off as an educator, right? In, in music, yeah. Um, yeah. It was um, in 1990. Wow. I applied to go on a course um, of an organization called Community Music to learn to teach music through workshops. That is so beautiful because you challenge the, the mainstream ideas of what a music teacher is supposed to be about on so many levels. It's the kind of thing I revel in. And uh, I grew up in an, an environment where there was this subconscious um, insinuation that music teachers are basically failed musicians. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's always irritated me because um, ancestrally I come from a culture where teaching music is basically the last stage, like the highest mm. form of the practice. So it's been, there's been a lot of contradiction between these two worlds of mine. Mm. 
And for me to have found, when I found out about your path and how it actually started from a place of education, it was just mm. so refreshing. And uh, I find it's, it's no coincidence that the degree of authenticity that's always been retained in your practice probably has something to do with that. Would you elaborate a little more? I totally agree with the idea that um, if you're going to teach music or absolutely anything, you have to be really utterly passionate about that particular subject or topic area of life that you're engaged in teaching. You've, you've got to be super passionate. And as a result of that passion, you will always be trying to improve your own practice. So in my example, uh, to improve as a musician, as a percussionist, as I was in those days, to be able to convey that joy across to people as much as the actual technical aspects. We weren't really, I guess, teaching music as such. We were trying to engage people in the process of music making and also collective music making mm. and all the implications thereof. You know, if it then enabled you to work collectively in your community in whatever capacity you happen to be doing, then for us, that's the job done. You know, it didn't necessarily mean everyone was going to go out and become a, a musician, you know. But that was quite clearly a big outcome of, of the work that we did, but not necessarily the only intended outcome. It was to make people engage with each other. You mentioned about talking. I, I, I was, and I, I would say in several circumstances now, I'm still a pretty shy person. Um, and com working at Community Music in 1990, and most of the things we did were, again, oh, in this circle, which is quite interesting, um, as, as we've talked about cyclical. We're in the circle, so it meant at any point you you were going you were going to contribute to the session because the the whole thing went round. But it it was it wasn't you being put on the spot. It was very uh, supportive, and um, it was encouraging um, you to ex express yourself and to put forth ideas. That was basically how I came out of myself through the process of learning how to teach workshops and everything engaged with that. Beautiful. How do you feel about mainstream music education in the West? I'm not, um, I'm not really engaged with, with all of that. I tell you what I'm not really into, and this sadly I feel happened with community music. That So, I mean, let, let me just go a bit further ahead and then I'll come back to that aspect. Please. Uh, so I, I was, I became, it was a one-year course. Um, I happened to become, or was asked to become a core tutor um, at the end of that year. And I was pretty much then in a situation of quite busy employment, doing a variety of workshops, which were based not only on conventional or so-called conventional instruments and band workshops and percussion workshops, but also because I was a practitioner and one of the very earliest at that time of electronic music and one of the first people to engage in teaching electronic music. That probably also helped me in their choice of having me as a new core tutor. 
Mm. So ADF actually originated out of one such workshop about three years later in 93. And that's how I got to meet the original rapper Didar Zaman and the um, uh, turntablist, which is um, Pandit G. Mm. But I think something that happened as a consequence of the success, I suppose, of Asian dub was that I think they tried to gear the teaching towards ways of getting into the music business, okay? right. which is a massive step from what I was just talking about, which was basically music as a means of helping people to engage with each other in the world and to come out of themselves. I mean, there were stages in between where there were various courses that were formed and which I taught upon and where I helped create the, the, the syllabus and the curriculum, you know, I can't even remember the name of the course now, but to, to, teach, to teach young people electronic music and how to perform that live. I did such courses that I, I'm, I would still be interested in, right. interested in again after 20 years in teaching such a thing. Uh, which year was this? Um, must okay. have been 94. So that's literally probably one of the first formal syllabi ever written for electronic music. Correct me if I'm wrong. It's possible. It's possible. I mean, electronic music existed before I was engaged with it. And there were probably more academic courses pretty likely in fact i was just reading about it but in america they were way more specific they were to do with like what you call modular now and and synthesis all of that right it was very academic but i guess what we were doing was pretty different which which was about not just to compose but right from the outset how are we going to perform this so in that respect it was had very much in common with doing like band workshops which is you're teaching people or showing people methods of not just to write a song it's not a songwriting thing it's how are we going to actually perform this and yeah. engagement yes and yeah definitely engagement yeah. In, uh, engagement with the audience uh how to relate to each other, how to support each other. Um, a lot of the work at Community Music was actually looking at principles. And one of them was, okay, how do we know where we are within an arrangement of a piece of music? And the responsibility that everybody needed to know that, and you don't just put that responsibility onto the drummer and you're waiting for the drum fill to know where you are, that everybody in the band or the ensemble is um, collectively responsible and therefore if somebody forgets then with the support of the other people they know how to get back in and also the methods of how to get back in and also how to embrace any accidents musical accidents that happen and maybe something really good has happened maybe by the the bass dropping out at that point it, it becomes a future part of the arrangement because it a very dynamic moment and the drama increased when it comes back in etc to become aware of all of those factors generally in the process of ensemble music making so that was very much incorporated into the idea of um, electronic music workshops so it wasn't simply about you know it wasn't just about the midi it was also very much to do with solving problems as well making people independent and also problem solving you know why can't we hear this sound what midi channel is the midi lead plugged in is 
it's the whole rig plugged in at the wall. <laughs> you know, let's go back to basics. Oh, yeah. You know, so encouraging common sense and clarity of thinking and mm. calmness of thinking, all of those issues as, as much as the technical side. Sounds like you were way ahead of your time. I mean, mainstream medic uh, education industry, and it has kind of become an industry now almost, is just about get, getting hip to the entire larger picture of, okay, where does music even fit in in our everyday lives? Mm. And in my opinion, a lot of it has to do with the record industry crumbling, which mm -hmm. is not my, you know, I'm not going to, that's, that's like a whole different conversation, if that's a good or a bad thing. But uh, it has brought down a lot of people to their knees and there's been collateral damage, of course, but the significance and the aims of music, both as a performer or an educator, is being re-examined in a way that's never been done before. And I feel like uh, revisiting some of the work people like you did back in the day would uh, be a great place to start because... Uh, you're addressing issues, and you were doing this in the 90s already, which I still see educators, professional, full-time educators who've been doing it for a while, mm -hmm. uh, still struggling to figure out. I listened to an interview of yours last night, which I found extremely inspiring, where you say, I'm going to try and quote you roughly, we don't want youngsters to copy stars even us, or listen to media, something on those lines. So my question is, what would you say you want them to do? I'd like them to be in inspired to the point of wishing to go and express for themselves and using actually whatever medium they wanted to explore. So, you know, you could probably come to an ADF gig and then it might inspire you to write, to, to write a story or a poem or it might inspire you to go and do some research, or it might inspire you to, to play bass guitar or to, to program electronics, um, whatever. But it was very much about encouraging people to express for themselves and to start up their own project. And I think the thing about copying is like, you can be inspired, but you don't necessarily have to reproduce that which inspires you or you don't necessarily have to reproduce it something in its entirety. So, you know, I was I was talking about I, I've been in most recent times inspired by underground resistance and particularly for Tongshu, um, Robert Hood and his emphasis on the kick drum. Mm -hmm. But that didn't then mean, OK, I'm going to do four on the floor. I, I've actually tried to do four on the floor and I just don't actually feel it. You know, I've. I've even recently I've worked, I'm working with someone who's doing the drum programming and he is doing four on the floor and it's wicked. And I respond to it by writing my acid bass lines and stuff to go with that. That's okay. But I don't necessarily feel to do that myself. So the point I'm making here is I like to hope that I can encourage people to engage in the creative process and and then they too will encourage somebody else or make somebody else happy with that sound. And, and so it goes on. And so you're building this kind of counter culture of, of creativity and expression that hasn't necessarily got anything to do with trying to be in a band or trying to be famous or make it big or whatever. Exactly. And in, in, a, in a world today where famous is, is being redefined anyway for musicians 
who haven't already had an established career 20 years ago. The entire idea of stardom, it's, it's kind of been kind of deleted. But that's probably, I'm not even sure how relevant that is. But yeah. I really love what you said there about the inspiration. And I've always said my most sincere attempt to pay tribute to my heroes has been not to copy them. But for those of us who have a lot to say and have a lot to express and probably are dealing with fear mm -hmm. to go out there and do it, what will your words of advice be? Oh, wow. Well, at the moment, <laughs> don't go out there and do it. Stay <laughs> well, me but, metaphorically uh, speaking. Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. I think you've just got to go ahead and do it. The first stage is... Yeah, you don't necessarily have to be out there in front of other people. And also, you have got to be happy yourself with what you're doing. For me, um, I, I create sounds or engage in music that, to an extent, I would want to listen to myself. I mean, that might sound a bit weird, but I actually... Not at all. Actually, I you know, think you hit the nail on the head. I mean, there's so many people out there. It's like self-love, really. Well, what, what does that imply? If you're making something that you're not going to listen to yourself, and stuff, it means you're, you're simply engaged in making a product. You know, you're, you're making something that is purely for capital. It's a cycle of self-loathing waiting to happen. Yeah. For me, the first port of, port of call is you engage in the process. You start from wherever you are at. And whatever level of skill you're at, and it and it might not sound great at that particular moment in time, but you have to struggle, and you've got to just work at it, and to not become despondent. And a way of looking of dealing with that is what I sometimes say to people. You know, uh, when I've once or twice taught the basics of bass, and people are struggling just to get a simple, very nice, sweet sound from one hit, and I say, look struggle with it even if it's for four or five days even if it's for 14 days doesn't matter keep going because once you've got it after 14 days you've got another 60 years in which to express all right in, in which that 14 days that you struggle to get a decent bass note will become insignificant in terms of time but significant in terms of you made this effort you went through that so doesn't matter if it takes you that amount of time there because then you've got another whatever 50 20 60 years to express you know for, for most of the young people I was working with I could quite easily say to them you've got another 60 65 70 years to go and it's something that that can never be taken away from us right it becomes no. a part of us at a, a level where you've invested in something that stays with you for the rest of your life absolutely so you, you you've got to engage in that process and you've also got to do stuff that you like yourself i really think that's important you can't be doing stuff that asking the next person oh do you like this and basing mm -hmm. your continuance or non-continuance of that process of learning based upon somebody else's now nah, i don't like it you can't be doing that you've got to learn to love what you are doing yourself such a challenge in today's world especially for younger generations i feel genuine compassion for them with the the amount of options and the information out there, an entirely different league of, 
a challenge than it probably was even 10 years back, right? We're also living in this world which is governed by likes. Oh, and, and fuck yeah. <laughs> love. And, you know, they're so dependent on getting so many likes or loves or, or, or followers, emojis or followers in yeah. order to feel justified. It's exactly the same point as I was just making is that you've got to really believe in yourself and love what you're doing and you've got to pursue that. I think there's another principle. If someone's music or their writing or their painting, if it's that good, it eventually it will it will make it through. Amen to that. To what degree it will make it and all of that. That's that and what degree of economic success. That's another issue. And whether or not you get that acknowledgement in your lifetime, maybe all of that is another issue. But I think the first thing: be true to yourself. Because if you can't be true to yourself, you can't be true to anybody else. Very true. We, I mean, our first relationship and last relationship is with ourselves, right? Yeah. But I can't let you go without um, asking a couple of questions I'm really curious about. Number one, bass. And I know you're currently working on music that doesn't necessarily highlight your work as a bass player. But you're probably one of the most underrated bass players out there. Bass is a philosophy. It's a perspective which not everyone gets. You either get it or you don't. There are so many yeah. guitar players and so many people out there who think they're playing bass and, in my opinion, are quite clueless. Mm-hmm. But with you, it's so evident you, you get it. You, you, know, you get bass. Mm-hmm. And yet, you come, well, ancestrally anyway, and that's, that'll be another topic I want to address too, mm-hmm. uh, f- from a musical culture which doesn't on the surface anyway doesn't actually have bass mm-hmm. how did this happen how did a londoner with south asian roots decide to play bass of all instruments especially at the time you got into music so really that's a really interesting preamble to that question um no, no no seriously that's really good i've never heard it put that way um it goes back to cyclical melodies all right which has been the, the principle of cyclic and also the principle of melody have been so central to my musical creativity. And that all came from learning or being taught to play harmonium um, wow. when I was little, when I was probably between the ages of seven and nine, by my aunt who sung contemporary Bengali music. So she wasn't a professional, but Within our culture and our community in London of Bengalis, there were many talented uh, singers and mostly singers and maybe instrumentalists, maybe tabla players. And there was definitely a culture, a local culture, whereby every so often we would hold our own functions, either in a, um, a hired hall, church hall, or in each other's houses. And... Um, People basically expressing their talent of singing what what they had learned from their teachers in India, in in West Bengal. And um, so my aunt similarly taught myself, also my older sister, and then subsequently my younger sister as, as well. So I learned to play harmonium. I would say two more, more basic than even intermediary and at the same time, learn a few contemporary Bengali songs or Bengali folk songs. But the harmonium was part of the process. It was more 
learning the harmonium was more to do with being able to accompany myself singing those songs. Oh, so, so you sang as well? Yep, I had a, I had a decent voice. You know, if I if I'd ever chose to pursue that and go with the voice, I don't know. You you've got beautiful timber. It's very apparent to hear. I I imagine that. Uh, I don't know whether I would be singing bowel songs or not, mm. or if I could have. I didn't really. I didn't pursue it, but. The whole voice thing, it was still important in that I seldom ever, to this day, play a bass line that I cannot sing. Yes, yes. You know, so yeah. with the harmonium playing is I learned the basic scales. I learned basic balta, which was a very important principle. All right. It roughly equates to the Western principle of arpeggios, mm -hmm. but on a very, very superficial level, I suppose. Mm -hmm. But the idea of reordering, it's not necessarily progression, but a melodic pattern, okay? Um, how, 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 how to take four or five notes and create variations. And then balta, ulti balta is, is, in, um, is in everyday usage in the Bengali language. Mm -hmm. you know, it means everything's higgledy-piggledy or mixed up, ulti balta. Ulti balta, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, One of my favorite uh, words. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's <laughs> but balta is from there, which means, in at least in this context, it means variations. So you learn from the very what is the most basic balta is sa re ga re ga ma ga ma pa ma pa tha pa dhani dhani sa, and then sa re ga ma re ga ma pa ga ma pa tha etc. So. Those are the basic balta, and then you could get more and more complex, and then you had, then you learn the other things. And of course, so what I'm learning here is getting a strong sense of melody, but not just melody. For me, hook line, the 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 notion of hook line, yes. which is a pop thing, except I've never applied it to pop music. I've always applied it to experimental music, but the notion of a repeating melody or motif that is pleasing pleasing to the mind to the body makes you dance or it, it does something pleasing in your brain oh yeah so that notion of hook line and melody that came from it and that's why i learned to love rags when i sat with my father who'd be listening to his classical i was i never really got into classical in a heavy way for various reasons, from reasons of caste and class and political reasons, but I hear you. The the notion of melodic cycle there, right in the center, that was super influential in in my bass playing because there you have the melodic cycle. And what did I do? I transposed it down a few octaves to make the dub bass line. Or rather, when I first heard the dub bass line and when I first and by heard I mean when I first discerned that there was a separate entity called a bass line and a melodic dub bass line and, and this happened probably about 1981 listening to Black Uhuru the Red Album it's the first time I recall realizing that there's a distinct thing within a 
reggae song, which is called the dub bass line. It's the first time I acknowledged it there. Beautiful. There's two things that happened. First, with that specific album, it was Robbie Shakespeare on the bass. First of all, I noticed you've got these low-frequency melodies and also that they were often praising the vocal melody. Or was it the other way around? Was Michael Rose singing his vocal melody because he heard the bass line? Or was mm. it both? Was it happening both ways? So again, we got this correlation between vocal and uh, a melody, but in this case, it's a bass melody. But it's then I also making the connection. I was going, hold on a sec. This notion of a cyclical melody, it's, it's what's, what they in Jamaica are doing on the bass with the bass line. This is the same thing going on thousands of miles away, different geographically and historically and class-wise connections. But it's the same musical, it's a similar musical principle of the cyclical melody, but arrived at for different reasons and from and and in different registers. But to me, so a lot of the first experimentation I was doing when I became proficient enough, physically proficient enough, was I was I was learning rag rag melodies. And mm-hmm. I you know I actually also would listen to uh, the cassettes that my sister made of her rehearsals or her lessons um, on sitar that she had, my younger sister. And um, I would I would uh, learn what she was doing and play it on the bass. Wow. One melody that still sticks in my mind uh, that was on one of these cassettes was dun-da-da-da-dun. And then at the end it would be all of those, and I would, you know, play on the bass. And voila, you're in dub world. Uh, yeah yeah you check the first b lines i did on the first two three albums there was these kind of melodies bass melodies and also um the use of palta to to create variations so i never got into the whole idea of soloing and all of that i wasn't interested but the the idea of introducing variations and introducing variations, not through key change, because I never got into that either. Everything was modal, you know, and the, the rugs I heard, they were all modals. So that, that stamped a, a really strong sense of modality. And I still, to this day, do not understand key change. And the only progression that I can do intuitively is the blues progression you know but anything else if you if you said to me okay we're going to go from the rue up to the uh and we're going to do i don't know whatever i just wouldn't it wouldn't be intuitive i would have to learn it but you touch upon such an important topic there when you say whatever that's <laughs> you know in my opinion and i have 
11 years of like mainstream college music education behind me. I bear the scars to show as well for the same. Mm-hmm. Um, like 85% of what's taught in these colleges is mm-hmm. really whatever. And for those of us who usually end up actually doing this for the rest of our lives, yeah. that 85% goes to the bin. It's just Shit. a bunch of concepts yeah. built by people Uh, 99% of whom didn't even actually spend a lot of time playing music. Um, Again, when you say I don't play solos as such, that entire concept of solo, Mm. in my experience, and I'm happy to be corrected if I'm wrong, Mm. is a very academic Western concept. I'm going to try and be as lenient as I can with my nomenclature here. Mm. Um, Which is, again, very apparent, and I'm going to draw a parallel again here in between that and the way you started off your career as an educator, it kind of goes directly to the core of what music boils down to, connection, right? Mm -hmm. You're starting off there, whereas you go to college to study music. I went to, uh, back back in the day, Berkeley's German partner, and the first thing they did was test my reading skills, and I I was a shit reader, and and, um, I failed my first rhythmic uh, exam, which was shocking for a lot of my teachers because I was the only guy who didn't think 21-8 was a weird rhythm. So I was <laughs> completely at ease at these very complex rhythms, uh, none of which the teachers could even start off, start off with. Yeah. And yet here I was failing my rhythmic lesson. Point being, that whatever, I can't think of a more appropriate term to uh, use to define that whatever is a good place i'm gonna <laughs> remember that one yeah yeah i think uh, i think i'll start my own college and call it the bachelors of uh, whatever <laughs> cycling back to what you said though about melody for our listeners if you you should definitely rewind to the part where dr das does the, the bit of scatting over the paltas and then switches into the dub bass line that is gold I mean, I'm gonna definitely gonna rewind. That's probably the most articulate and the most beautiful organic representation I've heard in a long time of how simple musical connections all around the world can be represented. How simply, sorry. Thank you so much for that, by the way. Okay, I have no clue where I was headed with this anymore. Do you remember? You said you had another question. Yeah, but was there anything you want to add to what we were talking about? Um, well, I've summed it up on the term Indodub. Mm-hmm. In that. It was dub bass, but with me making the connection between that principle having been utilized in India with the rug. And um, so you, you check out a lot of the early ADF lines. They very much were consciously Indian kind of melodies. And then the variations that I did using those principles of Balta and stuff i did create longer sentences so to speak with the basic two bar baseline do variations that would then um might last 64 bars and so that's something different to doing a solo it's like making it, it's a long progression rhythm i like is an example actually of um applying an indian kind of mentality and making a long baseline so how do you describe an indian mentality in context to what you just said by indian mentality i meant the cyclical nature the use of balta and balta i used to visualize i imagined running up and down steps Mm -hmm. so 
that first one I did, so you run up three and then you step back one and then you run up the next three, then you step back, run, and you could go and you could do it going up the steps and down the steps as well. Music is also visual to me in my head. I just visualize your runner running up and downstairs while you were even describing that. <laughs> Imagine doing, and you know, and then I'm doing it again. You could do all of these different permutations making this pattern so in answer to your question about the indian mentality i think it's about the usage of patterns hmm. and sequences and it's a kind of almost scientific but it's also the outcome is very melodic and pleasing so that has always been my approach to bass you know i my favorite bass lines of anybody that i of all my favorite players are are melodic and cyclical. They're not the most complex lines, you know. Uh, what Tina Weymouth does in uh, Once in a Lifetime is incredible, and I almost still don't get how she's doing it. Mm. You know, boom, 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 boom. How it fit in the, in the context and where she's placed the notes at this point now, twenty years on, I've gone back almost to my beginnings on the bass guitar because I started out more as a percussionist and a conga player but and my first bass lines were trying to reproduce the two open notes of a conga and that particular interval I don't know whether it's root and minor third wow. um, which is one of my favorite I mean I only ever use two intervals in all my bass lines it's root and minor third and root and minor seventh you know minor seventh in the in going down and yeah. minor third these are very very funky mm -hmm. heavy funk most of my bass lines make use of that aside from fifths and uh sixths and whatever well there's actually very deep relevance behind that probably be material for an, en an entirely <laughs> new podcast you know <laughs> bass yeah what i was just saying was um it's now I've, like at the beginning where I played those two notes because that's the only two notes I knew how to play and I, I was trying to reproduce those rhythms that I was playing. Mm -hmm. As a bass player, I've come, gone back to using as few notes as I possibly can and it's about space and yeah. where to play, place those bass lines. And where, if you're a programmer, and you're and I have a physical machine in front of me and there's 16 buttons there then you realize well actually there's at least 16 places at least where I can place a note which will make it slightly different to if I put it on another place and then you start to realize well wow with two notes I can actually make it immense variations or the definitive baseline can be these two notes placed on any one of these 16 places i i mean i also uh, swing swing patterns a heck of a lot even when i'm using two notes and i trick people into thinking i'm doing something in three four when it's in four four and some people sometimes think so he's playing five four no it's all four four it's just how i've swung the notes and where I put them. And so it's become very interesting for me nowadays, even more aware of minimalism than I was before, uh, as a principle that governs my life and many aspects of my life. I'm really enjoying exploring the space. And so that's another concept 
that I will explore even more. Would you say the minimalism has been related to the increased clarity? I think minimalism as a, a general philosophic principle it, uh, uh, has touched me in lots of aspects of my life. And you see it now with Dongsho and, and even more so with Dispossessed. Dispossessed, mm -hmm. I've even got rid of all the beats. And I'm, and I'm really happy just to hear these cyclical sounds being fragmented. And it's usually only one sound in that, what I define as that piece of music. So it's this thing about how little I can get away with using in terms of material content in a piece of music. And with Dispossessed, I've kind of reached maybe this is as far as I can go before it's absolute silence or just ambience. Maybe I will end up recording the sound of the studio with nothing going on, you know. Wow. Maybe that's going to be my last statement. That's deep. <laughs> I only just thought of that, but it's a kind of logical. I have, I have used the phrase before in, in a conversation, my journey towards silence, which is basically using less and less material content as i just said uh, fewer notes fewer instruments the relinquishing of multi-tracking you know i'm no longer multi-tracking i'm just recording all my stuff to a stereo track wow and uh, you know my whole future tense album was based upon condensing one hour and a half worth of jamming down to 40 minutes you know mm -hmm. through through editing there was a bit of reinforcing of a few sounds here and there through multi-tracking but um that's not its raison d'etre and so in terms of process how little can i do to but still make something interesting how few sounds can i use how few instruments can i use um terms of equipment how little equipment can i use so back in the day 25 years ago i'd have a big profit sampler a separate sequencer, a sync box, another drum machine. Wow. And even that, even that was a minimal setup compared to what people had. Okay. Even that, I would go out and do gigs with just the sampler, the sequencer, and a drum machine. All right. But now I get all of that in a little box, which is not very big at all, seven, seven by five inches. All right, the, the Digitact, a little a distortion pedal next to it, the smallest Mackie desk I could get away with, a tiny little Mackie 5, um, a little Korg Monotron, which is surprisingly heavyweight for what it is, little delay pedals. You know, I'm, I'm tricking, sometimes tricking people into thinking he's got a little modular rig up there. No, I haven't. I've got a few little boxes and they fit into my rucksack and I can get on a train and go and play somewhere and I can set it all up in 10 minutes. You know, how, how many clothes do I have? If I've got more than two bags, I, I'm thinking um, I've got to give some of this away because I'm, I'm not wearing all of this. You know, I'm being a bit extravagant, you know. <laughs> yeah, I can, I can relate to that very well, actually. I don't hang on literally to loads of material objects it doesn't particularly make me happy i feel more happy with fewer things absolutely i i gave up my like a pretty sprawling apartment which was also my studio a few years back 
because yeah. uh, it, it was getting to the point where I'd enter the place and I was, I was like, oh my God, all this stuff, all this yeah. stuff, and I'm responsible for all of this. Yeah. It was not a good feeling. Yeah. Uh, part of it was also a conscious decision to design my life in a way where I wouldn't be staying at the same place longer than three weeks because okay. with my family and friends spread out in so many different places. Yeah. But, uh, but, but point being, that's actually a feeling I can intimately relate to. Mm. Um, the one question I wouldn't want to let you go for asking would be, tapas basically refers to the act of stoking uh, a sacred fire. So wow. the, my one question I want to ask every guest on this podcast is, what's your sacred fire and what would you like to throw into it to burn away? <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> you come up with some question. What's my sacred fire? Ah. I feel like you've been talking about your sacred fire the whole time, to be honest. But I'd, I wouldn't want to put words in your mouth. So, I mean, that has implications of trying to get rid of something. Yeah. Metaphorically speaking, it, it's what, to the best of my knowledge, burns away, in inverted commas, uh, impurities. Or, right. Uh, or, so, I mean, that's really deep. Maybe it's not stuff I want to disclose in an interview. Yeah, completely respect that. I wasn't looking for specifics, uh, to be honest. I'm, I'm trying to work it out, actually, what I wish to say. And maybe that is, maybe that is it. Word that I mentioned was to, um, articulate. I'm, I'm struggling to uh, find out about underlying principles in in the world in underlying principles in history and politics and how the world is run today and um to un understand those principles that's the first thing and secondly how to articulate that in a way that is simple but without being condescending or patronizing that says a lot though yeah i don't know if that whether or not is that my fire but i'm engaged in that struggle Sounds like a beautiful war to me. Okay. It's, it's not the easiest question to answer. I'm pretty, I'm, I'm pretty happy no one's going to be asking me this anytime soon. <laughs> so. It's good to be put on the spot because it's so easy to, to uh, fall back into uh, cliches. But I, I am trying to get to the essence in every respect, in everything that I do, rather than flapping around the bush. It pertains to absolutely everything including my baselines and I'm trying to cut to the essence and yet still make it something that is interesting and compelling and that can still bring joy and that can still encourage other people to go and express for themselves. Well, if I may say so, the, the sincere manner in which we just put your message out there right now in answer to this question is what makes you so, such an inspiring figure for me personally. You were a pioneer of a movement. It's as simple as that. And after all these years to answer the way you just did is, I think, what I would request my listeners to take away as the purest form of inspiration. That's what I live off. Okay. <laughs> You're very kind. <laughs> I don't um, think I started any movement or anything. I made a contribution. Yeah, but that contribution, right now you're definitely underselling it. Thank you for inviting me. And I, I really look forward to honestly playing with you one day. Oh, uh, yeah. I really don't think it's going to be one day either. I think it's going to be a project. Mm -hmm.
once we get the opportunity to do it. Gratitude from the bottom of my heart for listening to the very end. Please consider taking a minute to subscribe to our show so you know when the next episode is out. This is a labor of love, one I hope snowballs into one that's sustainable in its attempt to support independent thought and authentic relating. And having you as a regular member of our audience is what makes that a realistic prospect. Much love, talk soon. Just another voice out here.